I was recently in Dubai for a business trip. Exhausted from travel, I stumbled into a Chinese restaurant across the street from my hotel. It all seemed really nice. The tables were set up with lazy Susans, and the waiters all wore crisp tuxedo shirts with yellow bow ties and cummerbunds. I was ready to relax. I walked in and asked for a menu in English, and I got a lot of quizzical looks. And then I asked for one in Arabic, and I got even more quizzical looks. Finally, a waiter came forward tentatively and explained in halting English that the only menu they have is in Chinese. Outside of China, I've never been to a Chinese restaurant that didn't make an effort to bring in non-Chinese customers. I'm not sure I'd ever been in a place outside China where such a restaurant could survive without non-Chinese customers. But this was Dubai. It could, and it did. How did it come to be that Dubai, of all places, would have a large enough overseas Chinese community to support a restaurant like that? In this podcast, we'll examine China's worldview, its rising economic stake in the Middle East, and China's strategies to secure that stake. We'll analyze how Middle Eastern states are thinking about China's role in the region, and we'll explore what all that means for the United States and for the rest of the world. Joining us on this podcast will be some of the preeminent experts in the world on the way China thinks about the Middle East and how the Middle East thinks about China. The Chinese think about their security in what they term comprehensive national power. They focus on the economic interests and maintaining secure access to everything they want. In the Chinese worldview, when it comes to foreign policy, smaller powers matter too. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. This is the China in the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this episode, we'll explore China's foreign policy and how the Middle East fits into China's worldview. We'll look at China's motivations in foreign policy and how it sees its own role within the global order. And we'll explore how Chinese foreign policy is changing as its international footprint grows. China has turned itself from a poor and closed country to an open one that has lifted over 850 million people out of poverty. Has China turned itself from a poor and closed country into an open one? As China's economic footprint rapidly expanded in the past two decades, China has needed to devise a foreign policy to protect its global economic interests. And that has meant that it's had to open itself up and develop a global vision. But how does China see its own foreign policy? China sees its foreign policy as part of what's going to make it secure, which sounds very basic till you realize that this is a country that has fallen apart and been invaded in the not-too-distant past. That's Sulman Khan. He's an associate professor of international history and Chinese foreign relations at Tufts University's Fletcher School. In terms of staying secure, foreign policy helps in several ways. One is obviously economic. To be secure, you have to be rich. To be rich, trade, investment, these things matter. Um, so that's one dimension of foreign policy, and Belt and Road is a fancy label for that. The Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, is a Chinese effort to build networks of trade, 
infrastructure, and relationships that begin in China and span Eurasia. It's primarily an economic concept, but in the mind of the Chinese leadership, it's driven by the logic of national security. Investing in a state's infrastructure makes for a more stable state, and a more stable state is less likely to disrupt trade. But that's not the only interest at stake. Second thing, going back even further, is diplomacy. It helps to have friends wherever you can find them. And that's slightly different from the way great power politics are conceived of in the Western canon. So when we think of great powers, Russia's a great power, China's a great power. In the Chinese worldview, when it comes to foreign policy, smaller powers matter too. Um, so yes, you have to keep an eye on the United States, but there was room to think about the Pakistans of the world, the Algerias of the world, the rest of the world. These are tiny pieces, but they matter too. China does not have a natural network of allies. Instead, it seeks out friendships wherever it can. In that worldview, smaller states that might not have as much traditional pull as major powers can be just as valuable. For many years, China's most important partner in Europe was Albania because it gave China a foothold in Europe. At the height of Greece's economic crisis, when it looked like things might all collapse, China was deepening its ties there. For decades, China sought to highlight connections with Algeria out of sympathy with Algeria's struggle against colonialism. China's worldview pushes it to look beyond obvious partnerships and form diverse bilateral relationships in which China is almost always the dominant partner. It's a very equal opportunity foreign policy. Whatever works, works. So reaching out to an Islamic country or a communist country or a capitalist country or what have you, as long as it contributes to that basic goal of security, is not outlandish for China. And I think that's what we're seeing today with some variations. That equal opportunity attitude is attractive to China's regional partners as well. They can benefit economically from Chinese trade without inviting social or political disruption. Development, he said, was the key to solve all global problems. And while China is about to eradicate poverty, he said Beijing is not trying to impose their model on anyone. Douglas Paul, a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who's written frequently on emerging economics and Asian affairs, explains how China's foreign policies aren't tied to spreading China's model. So when China looks beyond the immediate neighbor's belt. They don't see natural friends out there somewhere. All of the relationships are on a transactional basis. It's not based on common values or common aspirations, but on what they can do for their respective interests. This strategy, combined with China's interest in small states, allows China to create a foreign policy tailored to individual nations instead of to larger Chinese regional policies. But how does China view its own rise? One of the most important things that I think the Chinese bring in their view of the world to the table is that China is not a rising power. That's Dean Chang, senior research fellow in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. I think a lot of people are very if, you know, accustomed to talk about the rise of China. Let me say that as a civilization that has run uninterrupted for 5,000 years, China may be said to be the world's most consistent 
and predictable country. China's preference and goal have always been to interact with other civilizations on the basis of mutual respect, living peace with all countries, and pursue win-win results with the rest of the world. But China, of course, is five thousand years old, and Xi Jinping. Chose the phrase "the Chinese revival," the great revival of the Chinese people as the China dream, very deliberately, because this is not Germany elbowing its way onto the world stage, demanding a place in the sun. Because prior to 1866, there was no Germany. This is the return of a great power who dominated an entire continent. There were no pure rivals to China. In 800 A.D. in Asia, China dominated Asia, and then for a century was nearly colonized and was vulnerable, and has now returned. This is the return of a major power to the international scene. China's worldview is very much shaped by the belief that the country is not new or up and coming to the world stage; it's been there for millennia. But the Chinese government also thinks that it's gathered some wisdom over that time. It's not looking to translate a growing global economic presence into a wider military footprint. The Chinese have observed the burden that the U.S. has undertaken in its effort to ensure security and stability in all four corners of the world. China doesn't want to do that. Here's Doug Paul of the Carnegie Endowment again. The Chinese are very much aware of the burden the U.S. took on itself when it. Deployed forces in all these remote places, and the, the exposure they had of risk, but they have been going through a process of acquiring new responsibilities. They started talking about the、um, military operations other than war, which describes very sizable increases in the deployment of Chinese peacekeeping forces under UN mandates to Sudan and elsewhere. The Chinese government is acutely aware that its military is relatively under-resourced. And relatively inexperienced, as the U.S. and allied militaries grew battle-hardened in Iraq and Afghanistan, China's military stayed out of the fight. That is slowly changing. As China is facing a growing need to secure key trade routes, it is increasingly participating in peacekeeping operations, humanitarian evacuations, and other military activities short of war. Sooner or later, as your economic interests grow to a certain point and they become crucial to you, you would have to deploy forces to manage them. That's Sulman Khan again. That's the way empires grown in the past.、Uh, mercantilism eventually leads to a military presence. China is figuring that out right now, and even though China still wants the United States as the main security guarantor in the Middle East, Beijing is preparing in the case the U.S. will no longer provide that security. Doug Paul says China is wrestling with how to ensure the security of its growing economic interests abroad. And then that's coupled with a sense that the United States, as providing the anchor for stability in the Middle East, is no longer reliable, and that China may be forced to take steps、uh, in the region. And they're right in that process now of, you know, how big a step do we take? Of what nature should that step be? Should it be purely commercial? Do we have to have a military presence of some sort? How do we get into that? How do we balance our interests between Iran and Saudi Arabia,、uh, Israel, and the neighboring states? China's growing interests abroad are changing how China views its involvement in other countries. 
With regard to the Middle East, China is still figuring out how big of a step to take, how much is necessary, and then how much they're actually willing to do. Evan Medeiros previously served as Senior Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He studies U.S.-Chinese relations, and he advised President Obama on the Asia-Pacific. I mean, the great power competition I see is between the United States and Russia, not between the United States and China. And I don't think the Chinese are interested in the Middle East as a venue for great power competition with the United States. The United States and Russia both operate and compete militarily in the region, but China isn't interested in the Middle East in the same way. Fletcher Sulman Khan elaborates. China's interest in the Middle East, they're economic. Um, risk of conflict with the United States, there is not a zero-sum game. If the markets are thriving, there should be enough for everybody to go around. So a rivalry with Washington over that region doesn't really make sense. And I would be dubious that people in China would see it that way. That's a very American way of thinking of it, this if they're in, we must be out. Um, so I don't know that that's something Beijing would worry about necessarily. But the United States isn't playing its traditional role in the Middle East, and China has the opportunity to step up in a way that it wouldn't if the United States were still seeking to be the dominant power in the region. Doug Paul explains. The Chinese, I think, are pushing against an open door in the Middle East. They had thought the Middle East was too dangerous for a long time to get involved and they would be sucked into conflicts. But they've now gone and had a very successful widening and deepening of the Suez Canal with the Egyptian government. As China is increasing its role in the Middle East, they're still testing the waters, figuring out how far to go and in what direction. As those small tests play out, China isn't implementing a grand strategic design, but smaller strategies that vary on a state-by-state -state basis. So is there an end goal that China is trying to achieve in the region? I don't think the Chinese have devoted enough time, energy, mind share to the Middle East to have a strategic vision of what they want for the region. I think for them, first and foremost, they focus on the economic interests and maintaining secure access to everything they want. And part of that is still demanding a seat at the table. Even though China doesn't want to be bogged down in figuring out Middle East peace, they still want to be part of the conversation. They're buffeted by the political volatility and the regional volatility in the region like anybody else. And so there's an element of ad hocness to China's approach. And that's reflected in their effort to not get involved in the Middle East peace process, but when they're asked for a view, sort of have a view. Their sort of nominal involvement in the JCPOA process, again, they weren't a critical player, uh, but they were adamant about being part of the table and they always highlight their participation as a success in their foreign policy. So they want to have the upside benefit without uh, much of the downside risk. Earlier, Sulman Khan mentioned China's strategy of finding friends wherever you can, and the Middle East is part of that larger framework. As a result, China is able to maintain relations with many different countries in the Middle East who aren't necessarily friends. And it's worked so far, but in the future, will various states start forcing China to choose sides? I think we're far from a point at which countries in the region uh, force China to make choices uh, among them, in part because uh, China brings so much to their relationships. 
uh, in particular, the uh, amount of investment, the amount of natural resources that they buy from these countries, the fact that the Chinese to date haven't been involved in managing security relationships among countries in the region. So it's been easy for China to be everybody's friend and everybody's been willing to accept that. I mean, it's no coincidence then when Xi Jinping made his first major trip to the Middle East, he visited three countries, uh, Egypt, because that's always been a sort of base country for China in the Middle East, and then Saudi Arabia and Iran. Xi Jinping's visits to the Middle East in the last several years are part of China's larger outreach efforts as Beijing figures out its foreign policy. But even as China is developing a foreign policy strategy, it is still emerging from a period of isolationism where its development efforts were really focused inwards. During his work for the Obama administration, Evan Medeiros worked with both China and various Middle East states. So I asked him to recall a professional experience that, that shed light on China's perception and understanding of the Middle East states and how it's changing as China gets more involved in the region. One of the most eye-opening experiences I had in understanding China's perceptions of the Middle East involved uh, a very private but not quite secret trip that myself, Dennis Ross, and Jeff Bader uh, took to Beijing in the fall of 2009. That's Ambassador Dennis Ross, who served as a special assistant to President Obama. He was the senior director on the National Security Council for what was called the Central Region, basically the Middle East. Jeff Bader was the senior director for Asian affairs on the National Security Council during the same period. This is right after the Obama administration had revealed that Iran had a secret uranium enrichment program and that the U.S. was going to begin a big international effort to focus on stopping Iran's nuclear weapon program. And a first part of that effort that ultimately resulted in the JCPOA agreement was a strong international pressure regime with UN Security Council sanctions at the heart of that. And that means China. Anytime it means UN Security Council, it means China and getting the Chinese on board. China uses the UN Security Council as a key component of its foreign policy toolkit. China still doesn't have the military might to really follow through with direct military action. But through its seat on the Security Council, Beijing can still ensure that its security concerns are addressed. Dennis, Jeff, and I went to Beijing to get a better understanding of where the Chinese were. Dennis laid out in classic Dennis Ross fashion a sort of long, impressive historical narrative about Middle East politics, especially security politics, and how destabilizing and rapidly destabilizing Iran's nuclear weapon program would be with a focus on his Israeli perceptions. They very much treated Dennis like the professor. Several Chinese officials presented him with copies of one of his books and asked for his signature. And what was eye-opening was just simply how basic and fundamental, not incorrect, but fundamental and basic their understanding of Middle East politics was and how Dennis was able to, I mean, for lack of a better word, educate them about simple dynamics of Saudi versus Iran, Iran versus Israel, how Gulf states would perceive Iran's nuclear weapon program, possible reactions, and thinking through the consequences of what it might look like, not only if Iran succeeded in acquiring a nuclear weapon program, but how destabilizing the process would be 
going forward now that it was public that Iran had a secret uranium enrichment program. Starting that conversation with, with the Chinese was important because what we found is that we had to help inform and educate not only our direct interlocutors, but really the broader leadership in China about not only Iran's nuclear weapon program, but the changing security politics of the Middle East. China is still new to the international scene, and it's new to the Middle East relative to other global players involved in the region. As China learns more about regional dynamics, sometimes from conversations with people like Evan Medeiros and Dennis Ross, other times through trial and error, China is testing the waters. Beijing doesn't want to get any deeper than it needs to, and it's still trying to figure out exactly how deep it needs to get in the Middle East to secure its regional interests. China doesn't want to and, and frankly isn't still capable of replacing the U.S. as the main policeman of the region. But as the U.S. shies away from that role, China is exploring in what ways and to what extent it might want to step up its efforts in order to maintain security and protect China's own interests. Next time in the podcast, we'll look at China's economic interests in the Middle East and how those interests are driving China's foreign policy and security policy in the region. And we talked to Karen Young and Scott Kennedy about energy interests and the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this is the China in the Middle East miniseries. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.